Okay, everybody, welcome. Oh, that's a bit loud. I'll move it away from me. Welcome, everybody. It's great to have you with us. It is um, strangely encouraging to see a number of ladies whose husbands are normally here <laughs> having exchanged places with them. That's great husbanding, by the way. You know who you are. Um, because today's topic, Ruth chapter 2, session 4 in this series, Men Aren't From Mars, Women Aren't From Venus, So Why Does It Sometimes Feel Like They Are, is entitled Rediscovering Femininity. Let me pray. Oh, before we do that, um, you should have one of these if you're at home. You should have one if you're here. At home, you'll find it in your email inboxes sent about an hour ago. Because... Uh, yeah, that's when I got around to doing it finally after a few things going on this afternoon. And um, uh, if you're here, you should have one. Um, and that will guide us through um, some things we want to talk about today. I want to mention again this book, which I have mentioned before, by Paul E. Miller called A Loving Life, from which uh, these quotations are taken. Um, A Loving Life is subtitled in a world of broken relationships, uh, I guess that's just part of the title, A Loving Life in a World of Broken Relationships. And Paul Miller does superbly um, many of the things that I'm trying to do in these um, Bible studies, which is to um, read the book of Ruth as a book of wisdom, informing us and helping to shape our thinking about that most complex of created things, that is to say, other people. Uh, and it's a really good book, really, really good book. Um, I encourage you to get it, read it, read it till it falls apart, and then get yourself another copy. Um, and I've got some quotations here which may whet your appetite for that. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we will kick off. I'm just going to shift this, pardon me. All right, let's pray. Merciful Father, thank you for this part of your word, the Bible in the book of Ruth, and we thank you for one another. And we ask that as we are trying to work our way through the complex terrain of understanding ourselves, understanding one another, uh, whether as married couples or parents understanding their children or children understanding their parents or single people at whatever stage of life, contemplating their various relationships and among them the possibility of marriage. We want to be shaped by your word, not by the whims and foolishness of contemporary culture, nor by any hasty reaction to our culture. So ground us, we pray, stably and wisely in the words which your spirit saw fit to inspire thousands of years ago, which have been preserved for our good, that we may reflect the glory of Christ, who is the word, proceeding from you, begotten of you, and with whom we are united by faith. And we pray that our faith will be strengthened, even now as we are led to meditate on this wonderful part of the scriptures. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so a quick recap about where we've come from. I've already mentioned um, this series is prompted by a recognition of the value of trying to think biblically 
and deeply as much as we can about uh, relationships between men and women. And I have in mind marriage, obviously, um, but not just marriage. Um, some of you are not married and maybe in the future, and uh, this will be valuable for you. I, I hope it will just be valuable for you just understanding yourselves and understanding your kid sister and understanding your mum and so on and so forth. But I don't want to hide from you the fact that um, the particular relationships with the opposite sex that many of you will and should have in mind are with your current or perhaps future spouse. And in today's chapter, this connection between how we relate to other people generally and how we might relate to a future spouse actually becomes, uh, I don't want to say clear, but it's quite relevant. Because what we find in Ruth chapter 2 is a depiction of uh, how Ruth behaves in the first instance in, re- in relation to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And it's that which is so striking to Boaz when their conversation kicks off in the second half of the chapter. And of course, we know what they don't yet know at this stage of the story, that they're going to get married. And so what we're seeing is precisely the first flickerings of Boaz's attraction to this woman. And it's quite interesting what attracts him to her. So we're going to get to that. Um, What I want to do uh, in preparation is to read the chapter. And then I want to talk about the problem that we face as we seek to approach this, because we, we never do theology in a vacuum. We never do pastoral theology in a vacuum. And just as I tried to highlight last week, there are a particular set of cultural inheritances that we're stuck with, which have skewed our attitude to masculinity and tend to give us a distorted and unbiblical picture of what it means to be a godly man. So there are similar or analogous cultural pressures that have driven us in certain directions and given us at best a stunted or shrunken vision of godly femininity. And we need, at the very least, to have those, that vision expanded. And I hope we'll be able to do that this evening. So I'm going to read Ruth 2, and then we'll work through the first bit of this handout, and then we'll just jump into the text and, and see what we discover. And um, I think some of these quotations from Uh, Pastor Miller may be helpful to us. So Ruth chapter 2. Let's just jump in. Is this too loud? Is it kind of ringing for you guys? It's it's not too loud? It's fine. Okay, good. It feels really loud up here, but I'll just live with it. Okay. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favour. And he said to her, she said to her, go, my daughter. So she went and set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? 
And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have you found favor in why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother in law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers. And he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean, even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So it all ought to be quite simple, really, shouldn't it? What we should do, what we should do is just read the Bible, gather together all of the dozens, hundreds, many hundreds of texts that bear on the the question of what a godly Christian woman ought to aspire to be. We should sort of synthesize them to form some kind of systematic theology of godly womanhood. And there we are, like we'd be, we'd be fine then, living in a kind of cultural vacuum, doing our biblical thing, all the ladies knowing exactly how um, they ought to be aspiring to live. But that's not the way it is. Um, normally what we do is we identify the pressures of the society around us as the, the major problem 
We do that in every area of life, don't we? When we're thinking about every aspect of our conduct where Scripture has something to say about how we should behave, and Scripture always has something to say about how we should behave in every aspect of our conduct. So what we do is we identify, oh, there's pressure from the world which is pushing us in a certain direction. We need to push back against that. And that's a good idea. We should do that. But sometimes that cultural awareness produces unintended consequences. And I think there are a few where the consequences are more subtle but nonetheless significant than this question of godly femininity. To highlight this, I want to talk with you about the problem of contemporary Christian femininity under three brief headings. And the first is to point to the troubling background. We are stuck in a post-feminist world. Uh, I highlighted some of the, the themes in first, second, third, maybe even fourth wave feminism last week. I won't recap them all. But suffice it to say that along with a perhaps well-intentioned desire to uh, liberate women from mistreatment, um, there have been some good aims, or at least understandable and plausible aims in the history of the feminist movement, going back to the suffragettes, for example. There has been a series of goals in the feminist movement which have drawn women more and more away from aspects of biblical um, aspirations. And broadly speaking, uh, what's happened is uh, first um, a denial of any meaningful distinctions between the sexes, and then, second, at the more extreme end, a, a kind of insistence that, who is it? I forget the name of the, the feminist writer who, who wrote, a, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. You know, it's not just that we're equal. It's that actually you men are a problem and we need to get away from you. But even in innocuous circumstances, I remember when I was leaving school and... Uh, about the same time as Nicole, and we've talked about this, and when we're at university and we're, we're with men and women, we're all studying, and I can't think of a single time, I can't think of a single occasion on which it was ever suggested by schools, careers, advisors, by people teaching and tutoring us at university, even by pastors, where it was ever suggested that the fact that men are different from women might lead a godly Christian man or a godly Christian woman to aspire in slightly different directions. There was some good teaching, wasn't there, among in evangelical churches that Nicole and I went to on godliness. And actually, there was some good uh, teaching in some contexts about the, the appropriate relationships between men and women in marriage and all the obvious hot-button moral issues that needed to be addressed among 18 to 23 two-year-old single people were addressed, but never once did anybody sit Nicole down between the ages of zero and 22 at school, university, or even at church and university and ask her to consider the question, uh, how might the fact that you're a woman shape your aspirations as an engineer? 
The assumption was that the only problem to be overcome was the sexism that is a hangover from the 60s and before, and basically what we want to do is make there to be no difference in your aspirations professionally. See, level the playing field. That's the, the background that we've all come from in one form or another, at least that bad, if not worse. And so what's happened as a consequence, um, I think, understandably, Christians have reacted to that. We don't want to be contaminated by that vision of life. Right? We know that's wrong. There's something wrong with the, the functional denial of any distinctions between men and women. And that's what you've got when it's a functional denial, when it does, the differences between men and women don't make any difference as to what you advise them to do and how you advise them to study and to train and what you encourage them to aspire toward. We know that's wrong. And it has produced um, a fear, understandably, of what we might call contamination, secular contamination. Secular isn't quite technically the right word, but contamination with the ungodliness of the world. So we don't want to be like them, in other words. The world is doing all this bad stuff. What are we supposed to do? And we hunt around anxiously trying to find answers. We definitely don't want to do that. That's wrong. What should we do? And so we begin the third step of this um, sorry story, which has landed us, perhaps, in some of the pickles that we find ourselves in now, where we posit inadequate solutions. And I want to suggest that they're of two kinds. The the first is the kind that you may be able to recognize more easily. Um, Quote, well, obviously, it's not a good idea for a woman to train to be an engineer because the Bible says women should be busy at home. The Bible says women should be busy at home, doesn't it? Name the Bible verse for me, anybody? Titus 2, thank you. Here endeth the systematic theology of godly femininity. One Bible verse. No, three words from one Bible verse. Which in some contexts have functioned as a kind of sum total of the alternative to this worldly mess that's out there that we don't want to be like. Is it true that the Bible says women should be busy at home? Yes. Is that really the most full-orbed, rich, deep, mature, wise, biblical, total response? Is that really the best way of summarizing everything to which a godly young woman ought to aspire? Like, no, it's not. And that's the problem. Can you see what's happened? I called it here hypersimplified biblical aphorisms. I've made a reference to this kind of thinking in previous sessions, where what we do in a desperate attempt not to make that mistake over there is we'll grab whatever biblical rope will help us to swing back over the other direction, and we do all of our worst theology by reaction. Because we'll clutch at any biblical straw and a partial truth which we elevate to the status of a 
the whole truth becomes basically misleading at best and untrue at worst, functionally. More recently, with the rise of, well, initially it was Jordan Peterson. Thanks. Thank you. You know, here we are in a mess. And the Lord, you know, not really understanding masculinity and femininity and, and, and human relationships. And, and the living God sends us Jordan Peterson. <laughs> it's like, thanks, Jesus. Um, a, 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 a Jungian psychologist who, on the one hand, did a whole bunch of good things, like standing up against the Canadian bills. It's C-16 or C-19, I forget. Um, and as seems to be drawn towards... Um, some kind of Christian things, but it's fairly clear he doesn't believe in the triune God of the Bible. I mean, you know, I heard the other day that his daughter, Michaela, Michaela goes to a church in um, uh, Arizona, pastored by Mark Driscoll. Yeah, that Mark Driscoll. Um, yeah, who, who knows? We, let's keep praying for Jordan Peterson's salvation, but at the moment he still seems to be a Jungian unbeliever. But what he gave us was a kind of sketch of contemporary social, social psychology, heavily contaminated with his evolutionary worldview. And he's been followed by quite a lot of other people, including some pastors who ought to jolly well know better, saying more or less the same sorts of things. So, for example, they observe that um, given the evolutionary and social structures that define, not define, that they say characterize human relationships, um, we'd expect men to want to have as many intimate partners as possible, and we'd expect women to feel this sort of pressure to capture one decent guy and hold on to him. And then they'll infer from that how men and women ought to behave in relation to each other. So what's a man going to be attracted to? Well, somebody who looks young and able to be a mother of the children that he is evolutionarily wired to produce and doesn't much care about fathering them beyond what's necessary to assure their survival. So what should a woman do? Well, make herself look attractive. Whereas, what's a woman looking for? Well, somebody who can be a father who himself is competent and therefore likely to give good genes to the child she's going to carry. So therefore, you get, and I kid you not, I kid you not, Christian, quote-unquote, teaching, which amounts to men are attracted to beautiful women, women are attracted to competent men. Ergo, can you see where this goes? And at this point, I don't want to sort of bang my head against anything because I want to bang it so hard I might do myself an injury. You know, it's, can you see what's happened? In a desperate search for some kind of response to the world out there, that's the best we can come up with, like a Bible verse or two. And then that, in an effort to become more sophisticated, really, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not impressed. I don't... I don't think that's the best we can come up with, is it? And so, at the risk of laboring the point, that sets the context for what we need from somewhere in Scripture. Now, why do I think Ruth chapter 2 is the place to find it? Let me tell you. 
Remember when we talked about the canonical setting of the book of Ruth? Like where it is in the old the Hebrew canon? So in, in our modern canon, it's after Judges, which makes sense historically, and before First Samuel, which also makes sense historically. It fits in the kind of history which the Christian canon is interested in drawing attention to. But canonical placement is also a, an interpretive judgment. The interpretation highlighted here calls attention to the fact that we're going from no king in Israel, end of Judges, to David, end of Ruth, which paves the way for First Samuel. But in the old Hebrew canon, it was somewhere else. It was after Proverbs, before the Song of Solomon, which calls attention to what's at the end of Proverbs. And of course, it's the, the godly woman, the wife of noble character, the woman more precious than rubies, whose husband praises her in the gates, who is not just busy painting her nails and making herself look beautiful. And it's before the Song of Solomon, which as well as being a picture of Christ's love for the church, is actually a love, st- love poem, a series of love poems. It's, it's telling the story of the, the romance between Solomon and his bride. And in the middle, here's the book of Ruth. So, so when we come to Ruth, we're expecting to find a narrated example of the wife of noble character, Proverbs 31, whom the wise king will find attractive, Song of Solomon. And so you go in here and you find a a man who is called the Redeemer, right? So he's going to be a bit like Solomon, the wise man. And you you encounter this chapter, Ruth chapter 2, which is the first time he lays eyes on this woman. Don't you want to know what he found attractive. Because what he finds attractive might not just guide your kind of decisions about how you make yourself attractive for the right kind of husband. It might actually be a picture of the godly femininity towards which all women will be wise to aspire. And you find here things I think we've neglected. Or at the very least, if we've not neglected them, we, want to, we should be adding them to the view that I caricatured. I hope I caricatured it earlier as busy at home. But just to press that point slightly, um, I don't want to labour it, but I don't want to highlight the danger. Wouldn't it be tragic if, in an effort to avoid the mistakes of post-feminist secularism, where women are encouraged to just aspire to all the same things that men are, Christian women who ought to be aspiring to 10 or 12 or 100 different things, actually had their portfolio of aspirations shrunk to like two. Wouldn't that be really tragic? If, and if busy at home was it, when actually there is more towards which a, a godly woman ought to aspire. And here I think we may find some of it. So jump in with me, if you would, to Ruth chapter 2. And let me just... Yeah, let me, let's get a bit into the text, and then we'll see if you've got any questions or comments you want to come back at me with. So, you know where we are from last time. Uh, they've just arrived in Bethlehem. Um, Naomi is complaining at the end of chapter 1. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitterness. Don't call me sweetie pie. Call me grumpy guts. For the Lord has made my life very mara, very bitter. Bitter. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And there's Ruth sort of standing next to her, like... Thanks, mum. 
Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? And I want you to think about this situation because Naomi has now come back and she is, she's showing Ruth how to behave. Uh, we're victims of famine, victims of death, victims of um, forced displacement twice. We have nothing chapter 2 verse 1, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And what you're expecting to happen now, you've just been told that information. Naomi had a relative. And so what should Naomi be doing? So Naomi went to the city gate and inquired concerning the whereabouts of her relative, wondering whether he might be willing to enter into conversation with her concerning the redemption of the land that used to belong to her husband, Elimelech. No. What happens? Naomi just disappears off the scene. She's sulking inside. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favour. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And, well, we'll pick up the rest of the story in a second. By the way, Nicole pointed out to me last week, I, I, I may have misspoken, I can't remember exactly what I said. It looks like, as far as I can make out in chapter 2, Ruth is the only gleaner, the only person picking up grains one by one. There are young women and young men there, as well as Boaz, and as well as the young man who's in charge of the reapers. Um, but it doesn't look like anybody else is gleaning. It just looks like Ruth is gleaning. All the other women and young men are, are reaping. They're part of Boaz's staff. And so no, Ruth, at that point, then is just going out and doing the work that nobody else wants to do, gleaning. Now, what does that tell you about the character of this young lady, Naomi? Oh, Ruth, sorry. What's she like? Yeah, Abby. Takes initiative. You're looking at the headings I've put on here. You actually weren't. It's just like mind meld, is it? Like, very good. What makes you say that, Scooby? Sorry, Abigail. Sorry, family nicknames. Yeah. Yes. It's a, it's a wonderful quotation here from um, uh, Paul Miller. Let me just read it and then tell me what you think of it. The abruptness of the text suggests that Ruth gets up immediately. It is critical she not lose a day of working in the fields. Notice who isn't going out harvesting. Naomi. Does that bother Ruth? Nope. So can you see that in verse 2? Ruth Mobite said, let me go. So her reaction to this hopeless situation, apparently hopeless situation, is... Not, not all the things that you'd easily find yourself tempted to react with. You're going to feel hopeless. You're not in your home country. You've never been to Israel before. You probably don't speak the language, at least not very well. You don't know what the customs really are. Um, you're young. 
you don't want to step out of line, and so you, you just go anyway. Ask permission, and then go. Now, why is that initiative point so significant for us to reflect on, do you think? Go on, Mrs. Clackhorn. Right. Complained. She had lost a husband, just like Naomi had. Naomi right. lost more, but she was a widow. Yeah. She could just as easily be sulking and saying, well, right. "Why don't you go and get the redeemer guy?" Yeah, go get the redeemer guy. Yeah. yeah. So she's not. There's no self-pity there. We'll come to that in a, in a few minutes. KB. Yeah, I th- it may well be that. It, it, there's some understanding that God's going to take care of them. I mean, sometimes people want to defend Naomi by saying, well, look, maybe she's older. Maybe it's, you know, you get to 60-something. I wouldn't want to be down on my hands and knees picking up grains. Maybe Ruth is thinking, I'll do this because I can more easily. Um, in which case, it then becomes a manifestation of her faith that she professed in chapter 1, doesn't it? So she said... Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And now, now, okay, you get the chance to show it. Remember, we've talked before about faith and faithfulness. And they are distinct. Faith is a, an internal disposition. Faithfulness is that disposition lived out in practice. But nonetheless, they're the same Greek word, same Hebrew word as well. And the concepts are very closely related. Because if you, if you genuinely trust in the living God, then you will necessarily be faithful to him. You, you can't say that you trust somebody's words and you're entrusting yourselves to their, to their care and then not follow their instructions. So faith and faithfulness, maybe that's what Ruth is doing here. Anne? Uh, right? Not ashamed to do hard work that nobody else wants to do. But her nails are going to get all scratched up, Anne. I mean, it's not great for your knees. You know, uh, I'm told, if I recall rightly, you'll correct me, Nicole, if I'm wrong, that in some parts of the ancient world, having a suntan was regarded as unattractive. Is that right? I think that's right because it was a sign that you had to work outside. Um, I don't know what eras that would have been from. More recent. Victorian England, yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe it's been an issue in other parts of the world. Um, you can't hide it. You know, it's like if you've had to be outside, you know, what, why aren't you just in the, in the drawing room playing the harpsichord? Or, like all those women in Jane Austen movies and, and books, I mean. You know, the ones... <laughs> there's, that, there's, that, there's that scene, right, in, um, when Mr. Darcy comes visiting. Remember that scene? In the, I forget which movie. It was a film. Is it Pride and Prejudice? And so there's this amazing scene. And, and I've obviously, I have, I have actually read this book. This is a book I've read actually more than once. Get that. What kind of enlightened man am I? Not. Anyway. Um, so, the, but there's a scene in one of the, in, I think it's the BBC serialization of it. And Mr. Darcy is coming up the road. And Mrs. Bennett and the sisters see him coming. And everything's in a mess in the drawing room. And they're like, <gasps> panic. They've got to get ready for Mr. Darcy to walk in the room. And so there's like scurrying around, gathering up bits of fabric. And, there, and, and basically, they want to get into a position which is most presentable for Mr. Darcy when he walks into the room. And when the door opens, they're all sitting there like this. 
doing like their needlework and stuff. Like doing nothing. And it's just this wonderful and terrible picture of, I don't know, what, what, what's the setting sort of 19th century, early 19th century, late 18th century England, where the most attractive thing in a young lady is that she's totally idle. Because, of course, really attractive, wonderful, beautiful ladies wouldn't have to do anything. They're just waiting for a husband to appear. Right? Preferably Mr. Darcy. It was 10,000 a year. Right? And it's like, let me tell you, that is so... I don't want to be rude. Um... It's just, it's not, well, it, it's, it's attractive only to a certain kind of guy. Maybe it's attractive to Mr. Bingley. I mean, he's got even more money than Mr. Darcy, but he's a bit gormless, really, isn't he? Um, but there's, 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 there's a Christian version of this where what, you're like, what I really, really want is to get married and first, I want to learn submissiveness, appropriate submissiveness to a husband. And we have a hard, I think we have a hard time squeezing submissiveness and initiative into the same brain. I think that's one of the problems. And then the second thing is, well, I don't want to go get started on anything, because if Mr. Wright walks in, I'll have to abandon it anyway. So why would I get started on anything? And, and especially expensive things like, you know, getting an expensive university education or something like that. And there's some wisdom in this, right? It's obviously, it, it is, the, the way you do the cost-benefit analysis for all the decisions is going to be slightly different for young men and young women. Believe me, I have two girls and one boy, and we had to do the math. And it's, you have to think through things differently. But... I'll be honest, if Mr. Wright walks in and you're sitting there doing your needlework and not doing anything, he's going to walk straight out again. I don't want Mr. Darcy stuck around. In fact, he didn't stick around, did he? And that scene, he just walks out about two minutes later. He's not particularly impressed. I don't know whether there's supposed to be a moral in there. But what's, what's really striking about Ruth is that, well, if Mr. Pastor Miller is right, the abruptness of the text suggests that Ruth gets up immediately. She can't deal with this issue of just sitting around waiting for something to happen. Because, see, the text doesn't say, now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And so Ruth you know, dressed herself up and looked nice and went down to the town square to see if she could find him. Sat in one of the cafes and sipped espressos hoping that he would walk by, and behold, the Redeemer came. It's like, no. So, so what you're being set up for, so is this man going to be godly? If he is, is he going to find this attractive? A woman who gets up and immediately goes out and takes the initiative to start serving her grumpy grandmother-in-law. So all these different elements are going to kind of fold in together. Now, um, consider... Um, how the narrative continues. Um, we've got verse, we'll pick up verse, um, we were in verse three, weren't we? She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. There's a whole study in, um, that we could do of the book of Ruth reflecting on God's providence. She happened to come to, yeah, of course she did. Um, 
And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you, and they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, we talked about this last week, didn't we? The, the particular form of his question, whose young woman is this, and what that says about what he's really interested in. He wants to know who's caring for her, because that's what a, a real man would be concerned about in Bethlehem. And this, this is what's really interesting. We skipped over this last week. What is it about Ruth that this young man, the foreman, calls attention to in describing her to Boaz? Yeah, she's the young Moabite. She's really gorgeous. She's the young Moabite. No, she hasn't got any money, mate. Find somebody else. She's the young Moabite. Do you want me to get rid of her? No. She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. It's just fascinating, isn't it? It's, it you're seeing through the eyes of the servant, not the servant, is the, the foreman really, the guy who's in charge of the, the reapers. You're seeing through his eyes, it's a, it's a brilliant piece of narrative, because you don't know what she's done up to this point. So she goes to see if she, so she goes and gleans in the field, and she ends up in the bit of the field. wonder what happened next, you don't know. And then you see through the eyes of the foreman, and the foreman's words evaluate her actions for you. So you get to see what he thinks is really significant, and what he thinks Boaz thinks is really significant. And what she, they both think is going to be a big deal is she just worked the whole time. Like she had one break or something for two minutes. Yes, she's the Moabite woman who's not only showed initiative but diligence, um, working hard through the heat of the day and she's still going. I don't know whether Israel this day was as hot as Texas has been today, but it's warm. I, one of the worst job I ever had, I tell you, the worst job I ever had, I worked on a strawberry farm in rural Oxfordshire. This is true. I guarantee it's true. Um, and I, I, <laughs> they, they paid £2.50 for every row of strawberries that you weeded. And these were, yeah, and strawberries, which means that there's straw everywhere. Sharp, irritant, nasty, dusty, gritty straw. And it's, it wasn't these kind of modern ones where they're all at waist height in these nice long racks being watered by sort of super-duper mineral stuff and all you have to do is walk along and pick the strawberries at waist height. It's on the, on the floor, so it's hands and knees. These rows are like 100 yards long and you're picking the weeds out the strawberry beds. Okay, I lasted one and a half days. I think it's the most difficult £6.25 I ever earned. It's like, I'm never coming back and doing this. Then I got a job at a candy store. I lasted two months because I couldn't do the math in my head to give them the change, but I don't know what was going on. Um, I got fired from that. And then I got a job in a hi-fi store where I did actually quite well. And then I learned to drive and I could deliver hi-fis and TVs to people. So my employment history as a teenager was somewhat mixed up. But I wasn't doing this. I wasn't scrabbling around on hands and knees. I lasted a day and a half doing this, and I was, there's no way I'm going back after lunch on the second day. So I forget about it. Too hard. This, this young lady is made of sterner stuff than 15-year-old Steve Jeffrey was, I can tell you. 
Um, more from um, Paul Miller. Then let me pause for a second and hear what, you, what you're thinking. Um, second quote. Love doesn't go through the day with a measuring stick, testy over the unevenness of life. Picture Ruth bending down and collecting individual stalks of grain in the hot sun, unthanked, unprotected, and unknown. This is the face of chesed. What's chesed? Anybody know? Love. Yeah, love. Very good. It's a Hebrew word which is in italics in uh, Pastor Miller's book. It means it's used in context where it refers particularly to God's covenant commitment to his people. So chesed means the, the love that he's promised to show. And Paul Miller makes the point in this quotation that um, Ruth's selfless service is what covenant commitment looks like. Of course it is, because back in chapter 1, she's, she's made this little covenant, little promise to her mother-in-law. Where you go, I will go. Your, where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She's promised. And that's what it looks like. And most of us will never have to do a job like this. I'm, I'm glad, I'm grateful to God that most of us will never have to do a job like this, notwithstanding my day and a half at the park and pick, weeding strawberry bushes. Um, it must be miserable. And it's how you show Christ-likeness. I'll come to another quotation later about on that same subject. Um, I wonder if she. I wonder if she ever thought about her friends back home in Moab. Now, some of them will be married. Some will be get, getting married soon. They'll have a husband to provide for them. You know they. They'll have their extended family around them. They'll do, you know, they'll go Moabite bowling and they'll go to Moabite, um, whatever Moabite people do in the evenings to relax. I don't know. They'll watch, watch Moabite Netflix and just have fun. And here I am, here I am picking up grains of gritty barley for my ungrateful mother-in-law. And... It's evident from later on. Well, let me just read down um, the next paragraph or so, and then we'll look at some more of these quotations and see if you've got any thoughts. It's evident that this is what Boaz finds attractive. And I just want to read this next portion. Uh, I don't know whether I I will succeed today in driving out of your young ladies' minds all of the, the stupid notions you may have picked up from anywhere else about what makes a woman attractive. But I'm going to try <laughs> and replace it with this. Look, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, and you see a lot of Boaz's tenderness here. Now listen, my daughter, don't go to glean another field or leave this one. Keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping. Go after them. I've charged the young men not to touch you, etc. When you're thirsty, go and have a drink. Then verse 10, look at this. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favour in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? There's no sense of entitlement. About time somebody noticed, actually. (laughs) I've been working jolly hard. But Boaz answered her, no, look, look, and here's the... You want to know what it is that draws Boaz to this young lady? All that you have done 
for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So he's, what we see now through the eyes of Boaz is, oh wow. Firstly, it's an interesting instruction for men about what you should be looking for in a, a godly wife and what you should be striving to be for them. The Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward be given you by the Lord under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And then in chapter 3, she takes refuge under his wings. Spread the wings of your garment over me. So a godly man should be looking for a woman like this and should be looking to be a husband like Boaz to her. But what, a woman like what exactly? Well, it's, this, it's like a blueprint for um, diligent, sacrificial, um, cheerful, humble service in circumstances that none of us would ever have chosen, but you kind of play the hand you're dealt, and this is what God's providence has led her to. And he finds it, he's, well, here is, here's a young lady who's worth talking to. Um, I want to share with you a bunch more of these quotations, but let me pause at that point and um, there may be some questions or comments you might have to things you want to talk about. Yeah, Hannah. I was wondering if you put anything to do with the bridegroom in Matthew 25. Bridegroom in Matthew. Like. Hmm. Hannah does this in Bible and theology classes, as in asks difficult questions. The bridegroom in Matthew 25, yeah? Have you got a verse for us? Uh, verse 1 through... 1 through 13? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So this is the parable of the ten virgins, and um, five are foolish and five are wise, and, and the foolish ones didn't have enough oil, and the wise ones did. And then when the bridegroom comes, etc. I think probably there is something in there. I mean, this is, this is talking about what the kingdom of heaven is like. But the image of bride and groom is obviously common to both these. And in both cases, it's about being ready, isn't it? Now, what does the readiness consist in? Well, in, in the parable, it's having enough oil, which obviously it's not like, okay, ladies, make sure you've always... You know. <laughs> yeah, that's not the point, is it? But it, there's the idea of readiness... I think this is what's really striking. Um, it, it does draw attention to something. So what does it mean to be ready for the right guy to sweep you off your feet? It doesn't mean just like, I'm here. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, there's that. And I, I think, I wonder if sometimes, um, I, I almost think it, it's as though Ladies fear that by doing too much or being too competent or seeking to um, begin their adult life as single women by actually creatively and energetically taking the initiative and starting to work in something demanding they might feel that they're a little bit too intimidating for the right kind of guy. I've heard this from 
grief. I've heard it from Christian pulpits. Like men don't like to be married to women who are smarter than them or better qualified than them or have higher earning potential than them. It's like, well, I actually quite enjoy being married to a woman who's got more earning potential than me. <laughs> like a lot more earning potential than me, let me tell you, and also smarter than me in all kinds of ways. I, I'm sure there's a certain kind of man who doesn't want to be married to a woman who's smarter than him. Ladies, that's not the kind of guy you want. A guy who's intimidated by articulacy. No, you, you, if you're actually going to be married to this person for the whole of your life, you want somebody whom you can talk with and contend with and who challenges you and is interesting. And I think... I, I almost fear that, that sometimes, again, it's, it's theology by reaction. So we don't want to be like the world where women are encouraged to be exactly like men. So what should we do? Well, if men do it, women shouldn't do it. It's like, genuinely, that's as shallow as it seems to get sometimes. And it's really foolish. Now, I know that there are genuine, difficult decisions to make. Like, it's not obvious that you should go $100,000 in debt to go to college. I don't think that's a good idea, incurring debt of that amount. It's not necessarily the case that growth in intellectual maturity is the same thing as an increasingly long list of academic qualifications. That's not true either. But I want to encourage you to see what Ruth does, which is so filled with zip and initiative and and conscientiousness and, um, frankly, just stickability and competence. And, and she does it for the whole um, of the harvest season, as you can see at the end of the chapter. So I've got a few more of these quotes I want to share with you. But um, I see a couple, yeah, hands going up. Emily, yeah. Um, to touch on the parable that you brought up about mm. being Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To me, Proverbs 31 clearly lays out qualities that a woman or a wife needs to be a good wife or be a good woman. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And, and we could spend a very profitable couple of weeks in Proverbs 31. And maybe we should, you know, because I know Nicole has done some fairly extensive thinking and organizing her thoughts on, on this, and he's even taught on it a few times. And maybe we should do a podcast together. How would that be? Okay, if I get Nicole on as a podcast guest, will you all listen? It will, it will break the charts, I reckon. <laughs> be even Pastor Shaw. Sorry, brother. Um, so, yeah, there's that. I mean, and you, you, you look through that and you find somebody who is active in lots of kind of different areas of life without either losing the, the, the femininity of a, a beautiful woman or the, the appropriate submissiveness of a godly wife. She manages to, to run her own business and um, make land investments and do a whole bunch of other things without anybody ever saying, oh, you're not very submissive. You know, it doesn't... So, so we... You know, it strikes me we need to, have a, need to find ways of developing a more nuanced and textured and more detailed and rich picture of femininity, and that will be a part of it, Yeah. And in one particular circumstance, it looks like this back-breaking sacrifice. And it will want, I think where it really hits home 
for in Ruth's case, now it'd be different in different settings, right? How would Proverbs 31 work out in different people's lives? It'd be different. But for Ruth, it's like handling the emotional um, background. And there's a bunch of quotations here which I want to share with you. I don't want to cut off anybody's questions. Were there hands up over here that I missed? Let me, let me just walk, walk through a, f- a few of these quotes from Paul's book, and it's really... Um, there's some helpful insights here. So there's, here's one on responding to the unfairness of life. Because like, if ever there was somebody whose lot had turned out badly, here it is, right? A woman in probably, I don't know, 20-something lost her husband and is now a refugee in a land that's not her own with a grumpy mother-in-law. I mean, that's pretty unfair, isn't it? All that stuff. Quote, here are five bad moves that our hearts can make when life isn't fair. Self-pity. Nourishing an internal feeling world of victim. I did check that quote. That is accurate. That's what he meant to say. Compassion turned inward. That was a fascinating expression, I think. Only having compassion for yourself. Bitterness. A simmering demand that God make the world just. Cynicism and mocking. Gossip and slander. Um, emotional revenge. I thought this was interesting. Withdrawing my heart to punish the other person. I mean, that, that's the temptation on the road, I think. And when, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And there they are stomping along the road and Naomi's like, hmm. Naomi's like, well, well, I can do the silent treatment. Ruth, you can imagine Ruth saying, I can do the silent treatment as well, but she's not. She's, and she'll wake up the next day let me go and get some food for us, shall I? There's, she's not playing this sort of tit-for-tat emotional game. Um, the next quote is in the background of all um, that I've said about um, the issue of singleness. We can easily forget that all Ruth's triumphs of love are done while she is single without marriage prospects. In fact, her greatest triumph is embracing singleness as a way of caring for somebody, someone in a seeming dead-end relationship. And I just think that is fascinating and so insightful. So, again, we know the end of the story. We know that in, I don't know, a few months, she'll be married to the, the most godly man in Bethlehem and a man who's clearly got financial means and is caring and is going to look after mum as well and... We know that, but she doesn't know that. She's just staring down both barrels of a lifetime of widowhood in a country where nobody knows her and everyone's a bit suspicious and, mm, you know, it's not a great place to live anyway. And, she, and she's thinking, well, here, she's, she's grabbing the opportunity that she has and thinking, how do, I, how do I be godly in this situation? Got to look after Naomi, okay? I just think it's profoundly... Well, Boaz thinks it's profoundly attractive. It's clearly how godliness is portrayed here, right? Yeah, Mrs. Clack, when you had your hand up. It reminds me a little bit of Dover, that yeah. she had a chance when she was widowed to go back. And then said, go on, go ahead. Go yeah. find a husband. Yeah. I can't give you any more. And she chose the Lord. She chose to cling mm-hmm. to, you know, the, the tassels of Naomi's gown. Just, we're going to go to where, yeah, yeah, yeah. where your Lord is, because that's who I choose. And then the Lord repaid her 
abundantly because she chose yes, to go yes, where yes. he was going to be. And she got a better husband than she could have. Yes, yes, with. yes. Like yeah, you're right. Yeah, Job is... Um, there's a moment, isn't there, when... Um, Job says, um, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <laughs> and so Job wrestles outwardly. I mean, he's got his friends there to talk to. And I, and I wonder how much Ruth is wrestling inwardly. But she's doing what needs to be done. And, and she doesn't seem... If she's wrestling inwardly, she's winning the wrestling match against, well, all the, the self-pity and the victimhood and so on. Um, uh, Paul Miller has a couple of great quotes. Just go over the page for me. And let me read a couple of these, see if they prompt any other thoughts. Our, quote, in tune with my feelings era believes that to be true to myself, to be authentic, means that I need to act on my feelings. But the opposite is true. The modern quest for authenticity has become twisted into a quest to have our will and our emotions in sync. This faux authenticity is just a fancy version of the 60s slogan, if it feels good, do it. So the celebration of being true to yourself means acting on your feelings. I'm not in love with my spouse anymore, so I'm going to leave. The result, we are dominated by the tyranny of our ever-changing feelings. We don't endure. Now, I think that's a fascinating quotation, because it, when I read that, I was rereading this book earlier today, and I got to that quotation, and it suddenly started to dawn on me, you know, there's another reason why Boaz might have found Ruth an attractive in all the right senses, marriage partner. Because one of the things that men and women ought to be looking for is somebody who has displayed genuine commitment and love. Who's, who's got a track record of, of knowing how to love. Who, who, who is a lover in that sense. You with me? And so... Boaz is in Bethlehem in the days of the judges. Why is he not married? He's quite an old man. He's older, at least, in chapter 3, it seems. Why is he not married? One obvious explanation is that he's not yet found a woman who he thinks is particularly suitable in an age where it looks from the book of Judges and from what we know about Israel's life in that period that there was a fair amount of ungodliness, including promiscuity of various kinds and so on. So you want to find a woman who's going to be committed and... Who, who's going to love you in the way that you're going to try and love her. So how do you know? How do you know whether you've found somebody who is really going to love? Well, if you can love Naomi, <laughs> you can probably love anybody. And so in this strange way, I bet Ruth never thought, oh, grumpy mother-in-law, this is my chance to show what a wonderful wife I would be. But it, it, that's how it turned out. If Paul's right, you know, what Boaz doesn't want is to marry somebody who's going to be dominated by the tyranny of their feelings. You know? 
your feelings will go this way and that, and um, they'll, in marriage, you'll find that there are moments when you are frustrated with your wife or your husband, and you need to get past that. And so a wise man is looking for a woman who is able to demonstrate commitment. And the same thing goes the other way around, obviously. Um, one, of, one of the questions that you ought to ask ladies, you ought to ask a, or get your fathers to ask a, a potential suitor is, um, well, how do you treat your sisters? How do you treat your mum? Well, you probably shouldn't ask him. You should probably ask them. Try and find out, ladies, how this gentleman has treated the ladies who he's not chosen to be with. The ladies who he's been stuck with for years. Seriously. Because if you're going to get married, you're going to be stuck with her for years. And she should know that. And so she... She doesn't want to know how you're going to treat her on the first date or the second date and do you know how to hold a knife and fork properly and, and um, do, you, do you know how to drive a car nicely without going over the bumps in the road too fast? She, those things are kind of important, but it's much more important that she should know that you're going to be there and you're going to love her in 30 years' time. Similarly, same works the other way around, right? You, you, um, a lady who can be attractive and personable for a brief conversation or for dinner one evening is not the same as a lady who will just pour out her life to care for somebody else and love them. And I wonder if that quote reveals something something else about why Boaz really was attracted to this young lady. Any comments or thoughts about that? Let me just pause a second. Oh, yeah, pardon me. Yeah, Evelyn, thank you. I, well, I don't know if First Timothy 5 has been mentioned already in this study. Or Not yet, but go ahead and mention it. Well, it basically is talking about what you were saying earlier about like exemplifying caring for others. Hmm. Like before, during, and after you get married. Because it's talking specifically about widows, but it's also talking about the type of reputation she's to have before yes. No, that's very interesting. I'd not seen that connection, but you're, you're right. that the, um, So the, the widow's list in 1 Timothy 5 is in a context where um, uh, there, are, there are lots of widows, and there are actually lots of widowers as well. And, and the, the reason is partly because, although the, the, um, the, the people who live for a long time in the biblical period and before would have lived into their 80s, but that was a much longer tale. There were far more people who died younger, basically, because of accident or illness. And for women, it was um, death during childbirth as well. Um, so what that meant was there were lots more people who lost a spouse earlier in their life. And if it was a woman who lost a husband, she might lose her livelihood. So the church, right from the very beginning, had this problem of how to look after 
the large number of widows. It might have been as much as 10 or 20% of the women in any given adult population could have been widows. It was really high. And it would depend on where you were and so on. And so one of the things Paul says is, look, if you're young, if you can marry again, marry again. Um, if you can't, well, how does the church discern how to uh, allocate its resources to, to the... How do you figure out who are the godly widows who ought to be cared for and who are freeloaders who basically want what they can't get from other people? And it's reputation for good works, brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. Which looks like, yeah, very much like a portrait of Ruth, doesn't it? Yeah, thank you. And it's, it must have been hard to do that without knowing where the, where the end state lay. And I, I'm conscious that for uh, different people at different times, among you ladies in particular, there may be times for some of you where you get to a point where you, you're, you're wondering when Mr. Darcy is going to walk in the room. And the temptation is to just arrange all the furniture neatly and grab your needlework and just sit there waiting. And, and I'm caricaturing. But that, let's not let that caricature come any close to the truth. Any, any close to the truth, yeah? Right. Any other thoughts at this point? Questions from uh, Zoomers? Right. I have a few more of these quotations I want to share with you. We've got about four minutes left. Um, I've mentioned the victimhood issue. This has become a... Um, when was this published? This has become more of a big deal in recent years. I think this book, I first read it in February 2015. It published in 2014. Yeah, 2014 was the year. Um, but the, the second quote on the, on the back page. Imagine a very different Ruth with a modern victim-fed attitude. She comes to the field seething at Naomi for ignoring her yesterday and not helping her today, and irritated at God that he has put her in a situation where she's alone and vulnerable. So when Boaz offers to help, she's only grudgingly thankful, since he doesn't know how hard her life is or what she's given up. How could his small gifts ever make up for what she's lost? Her simmering bitterness, her wounded sense of injustice, saps the joy out of life. And anyway, this is back to the authenticity point. It is an odd sort of authenticity where we demand that others be as depressed as we are. But the, that, the victim attitude, the, the, there may be times in your life, there likely will be in all our lives at various points, where uh, you feel you're a, a victim of circumstances and um, you wish that life weren't like that. You wish I didn't, I wish I didn't have that illness. I wish I weren't living here. I wish I wasn't um, I, I wish I'd had those academic opportunities I wish I was as good at sport as her or as good at music as them or I wish I had that job and, or I wish I knew more people or different people or just not those people and everything about our circumstances we w- I wish it was different and of course there are situations like that and none of us I hope we'll never be in a situation as bad as Ruth's, and I think it will be, it will be a rare person who made as good a stab at 
responding with godliness and tenacity to her situation as Ruth did. So just to um, complete the picture, um, much of the rest of the narrative in this chapter, we looked at um, last week. I want to just point you to one difference, one, one extra thing which we haven't caught attention to yet. Um, verse 20. This is after Naomi has realized a man must be involved because look at all that grain. Like, <laughs> there must be, a, must be a man involved, right? You didn't pick all that stuff up. Not in eight hours. Um, and then Ruth tells her, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz, verse 19. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The man is a close relative, one of our redeemers. And then Naomi continues a couple of verses later. It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. One of the things that's really striking in this chapter is that Naomi is completely transformed. You notice that? Look at her at the end of chapter one. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Why would you call me Naomi? Almighty has made my life bitter. Call me bitterness. And then here, she's, she's just filled with uh, new hope and optimism again. Now, I don't know what to make of that. The temptation is to, um, to focus on Naomi and, and, and accuse her of a kind of shallowness, right? Where, you know, your circumstances were bad and... You're complaining. And now your circumstances look better, so you're happy. You're so kind of, emotions are all over the place. What a mess you are, Naomi. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But one of the things that is more fruitful for us to focus on is, well, who is it who brings that about? It's actually Ruth's intervention that changes her. And she changes her just by serving her. And there's this wonderful um, uh, quotation right at the end. Under the heading, the transformative effects of love. Naomi's transformation is total. We see, and then he quotes Donald Rauber, who I, I don't know who Donald Rauber is, commentator perhaps. We see an upward surge of her spirit, a lifting from the depths. And we know that Naomi, who is herself among the dead, lives again. Ruth's chesed love of Naomi created the possibility of this resurrection. I just, this is a profound book, you know? Because it calls attention to how love transforms other people. And so we've been thinking, and I have laboured the point, and I'm conscious partly because we're blessed with young people here, and if you're 15 now, you'd be 25 in 10 years' time, and maybe you'd like to find a husband. I'd like to talk to you about that, right? But what we've also got is two women one of whose sacrifice and love and conscientiousness and service transforms the other. And sometimes when we get frustrated with each other particularly, we, we think, well, how can I change him? How can I change her? And we want to, normally we get a big kind of metaphorical stick and try and bash him over the head with it. I, I need to change him. And I need to change her. How can I change my sister? How can I change my mum? How can I change my daughter? 
And sometimes there's a time for word, but sometimes service of this kind has the capacity to transform people. I think that's what we're seeing here. We've gone just past quarter past eight. I think we should stop. Um, Pastor Shaw isn't here to tell us what to do with the tables, but I think I know. And Daniel Robinson is. I probably let me have a go anyway. Let me pray and then I'll have a crack at that and see if we can, see if I get it right. And if you need to correct me, we can. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful Father, uh, thank you again for this uh, chapter from the Book of Ruth. Uh, we thank you for the picture of this young lady's character that it sketches for us. And we pray particularly for uh, the young women and the women of whatever age in a church that you would equip them to see with greater clarity the, the roundedness and depth of biblical femininity uh, in sometimes forgotten texts like this one. We pray that in this way they would grow to be truly Christ-like women in the way that Ruth did. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me have a stab at the instructions for this room. So we want to get rid of all the tables apart from, is it four or six in a line?